We have a stat block for Vecna, perhaps the most powerful arch lich in the multiverse. We're going to talk about how Monty Cook Games is about to release an open gaming license for the Cypher system. We're going to take a look at the product Potbellied Kobold's Guide to Villains and Lairs. I'm going to talk a little bit about having run some of the NPC stat blocks from Monsters of the Multiverse, and we're going to cover more questions from the June Sly Flourish Patreon Q&A, all on today's episode of the Lazy D&D Talk Show. I'm your pal, Mike Shea, here to talk about all things D&D. If you like this show and you want to help me out, you can do so by becoming a patron of Sly Flourish. Patrons of Sly Flourish get access to all kinds of exclusive material, exclusive products, video previews, and a dedicated Discord channel, but most of all, they help me put on shows like this. So to the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you so much for your support. So it was kind of interesting this past week, Wizards of the Coast, now that D&D Beyond is owned by Wizards of the Coast, they've been releasing more stuff directly to D&D Beyond. We saw that list of monsters of the multiverse, they were the uh, play, spell jammery monsters that we got before. And now they put out Vecna. Vecna, the arch lich. I am a sucker for great big high challenge monsters. I don't know why I just like them. I like to look at them. I like to read them. You know, and I wonder, like, how often do we actually run things like this is a pretty good question. So to me, some of the joy of looking at a high of looking at a monster is imagining how it will run, not even necessarily how it does run, because we just don't run it that often, but imagining how we will we will run. And I will admit, when I first saw it, first of all, I was like, who did it? Is this I, I wasn't sure. Is this like a promotion thing for D&D Beyond? Was this done by Wizards of the Coast designers? Like, who actually made it? I wasn't I wasn't sure. And it, it turned out, no, it was actually made by the same designers that are making everything else. It was made by the same designers that make Monsters of the Multiverse, as far as I know. And so that was my first question. And then I looked at it, and there were parts of it where I immediately sort of rebelled. Because I guess that's what I do. And that's sad, right? We shouldn't, we shouldn't just, we, we shouldn't just rebel when we, when we see things. But yeah, the, my first, my first thought was like, you know, what's going on? And luckily for me, I have Discord and I can go into Discord and I can make my dumbass statements on Discord and people can be like, you know, you're being a dumbass. And I go, oh, you're right. Turns out I am being a dumbass. And my first take was you have the most powerful lich that we know of. He's at least up there with a the Sararak, right? He's up there with a the Sararak. And a big part of what he does is stab people with a dagger. And I was like, seriously? Like goblins stab people with daggers. Arch liches, do they stab people with daggers? That doesn't feel right to me. I was not as nice. Like they're stabbing, he's going like, you know, I am the most powerful lich on the planet. Poke, 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 poke right? It didn't feel right. But then I read about the lore and it's like, no, Vecna actually has a dagger. It's this unholy dagger and it's called Afterthought. I thought I was being trolled. I was like, seriously, you gave the most powerful lich in the multiverse a dagger and you called it Afterthought. I'm like, am I being trolled? Right? Is this a joke? Are you making fun of me? Right? I've kind of felt that way a little bit. And no, it actually does. Like you go back to third edition lore of Vecna, Vecna carries an unholy dagger called Afterthought and he, you know, Stabs people with it. So I was like, okay. All right. I give, you know, I take back my dumbass statement about the dagger, right? It, you know, it's worse. And honestly, the dagger is probably the only thing that makes this stat block of Vecna actually lethal, right? I still go back to, and I think that this is a pervade, you know, I, I, this is just how it is, right? Is that monsters above a certain challenge rating in fifth edition just aren't doing enough damage. And I think I figured out why. I think I figured out how come. 
And the reason why is I think that when Wizards of the Coast is balancing a monster's abilities around a challenge rating, they are overweighting a lot of abilities. And an example would be something like magic resistance, right? I don't think uh, Vecna does not have magic resistance, right? But when they look at certain things, they, they take magic resistance and magic resistance adds to a monster's challenge rating. It means that it, it bumps it up a little bit. It's as though they're... You know, I, I don't know exactly what the math is if you like, but if you look at the Dungeon Master's Guide, it'll say something like if it has this, it bumps it up a little bit, right? And there's a lot of abilities like damage resistances and damage immunities, condition immunities, legendary resistance, right? There's a lot of these things that all affect a monster's defensive challenge rating. And the actual challenge rating of a monster is the average between offensive and defensive challenge ratings, right? And so when you give it a lot of abilities, that bumps up one side of the equation, which means the average goes up. And then if you want it to be a certain challenge rating, you have to lower other parts. Well, guess what part gets lowered as these parts are going up? Damage, right? Because if you do too much damage, then it's like CR 38, right? My argument is about why this stuff is overweighted is that monsters of this challenge rating need a lot of these abilities to be effective at all. When you give a monster like this, something like, like for, when you give a legendary monster legendary resistance, for example, it needs legendary resistance because it's going to be the target of every save or suck spell the characters have otherwise, right? Only if they know it's legendary will they not throw banish and polymorph and every other spell they can throw on them to try to pin them down and make them completely ineffective. And many spells in D&D let you be completely ineffective. So in my opinion, a high challenge monster, particularly a legendary monster, the things that protect it to be a legendary monster should not count towards its challenge rating because it requires them. A Balor's, a Balor isn't legendary, but it's CR 19, right? A Balor magic resistance should be, shouldn't count towards its CR because it's CR 19. CR 19 monsters should just have stuff like that for free because they're CR 19, because they're so big, because they're so dangerous, right? And it's because players characters have spells that will just destroy a Balor otherwise. They might have a spell that destroys a Balor anyway, right? So I think a lot of the abilities that are counting towards a monster CR, especially at higher CRs, are overweighted, right? They're overweighting those abilities and it's reducing damage. And when we look at Vecna, I think that definitely comes across. And it's because, uh, and, and there's a couple areas where I'll show it to you. And then there's like, I have a, I have a Sly Flourish tweak that you can do a little, just small tweak to make Vecna truly like a powerful Arch Lich. And it's very small. So let's take a look. So CR armor class 18, 272 hit points. A lot of people are saying 272 is low. 272 is not, not terribly low because look at the Lich, right? <laughs> the Lich, you want to see low? Look at the Lich. 135, right? And it's CR 21. So it's, it's not that far off and it's less than half, right? So... You know, it's 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 low, but it's not that low. Uh, but but one thing that makes it not quite as low, and this is something about about Vecna that that grabs me, is it has this guy, Vile Teleport, bonus action. Vecna teleports along with any equipment uh, he's carrying to 30 feet to an unoccupied space. He can cause each creature in his choice within 15 feet to take 10 psychic damage. Not enough damage. If at least one creature takes his damage, he gets 80 hit points back. 80. So theoretically, every round he should be able to regenerate 80 hit points which means you have to do more than 80 points a, a round to even break through his threshold so if he could survive 
to his first turn and not take 272 points of damage in, 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 you know, before he gets to act, which could definitely happen at this high level. Definitely happen. There's w- definitely ways characters can dish out that kind of damage. If he can survive that, he should start bouncing his hit points back up. But it, yeah, is it low? Yeah. And could, you know, if you, if you know that you've got players and they're, they're using feats and they're using multi-class abilities and using things where their damage is going to be way high, you can just max this out. What's, what's the max? 32 times eight uh, is 256 plus 128 plus 128. So he could have 384 hit points, right? You could start him at 384. You could essentially give him a hundred more hit points. He should be able to survive, you know, a paladin crazy haste smite you know mammoth giant ape polymorph attack right with 380 hit points if you can't survive 380 hit points then your characters are seriously overpowered so that's one thing the other thing is the when we look at the so what what else has he got so one thing i like is he's got stun resistance so suck it monks right you're not you're not doing the spam stunning strike but he also has five legendary resistances i don't know why they give him five that's weird right five you might as well just give him as many as you want so I, I don't know why they decided five instead of three, but not, none of my, no one asked me. No one asked my opinion. Afterthought, this whole thing that afterthought is, is T, the aspect of Tiamat, GM Workshop says the aspect of Tiamat is five. The aspect of Tiamat is theoretically 10 because it gets five and then it gains them back when it's in its, its mythic mode. I'm surprised they didn't make Vecna mythic, by the way. The mythic would have been more interesting. So five legendary resistances, this whole line about special equipment, the fact that, hey, if anybody else gets afterthought, it's just a plus two dagger. I don't know why they didn't just make it part of the attack and then, and then not worry about what it is. Save us, save us some word count, right? They got rid of phylacteries and went to undying. Hey, cool, whatever. Vecna uses flight of the, the, the flight of the damned if available, because flight of the damned is a recharge, rotten fate or spell casting. He then makes two attacks. So he can do one big thing and two dagger pokes, poke. Poke, poke with the dagger, poke. Afterthought does plus 13 to hit. That's pretty high, right? Is that high at 26? I think that's almost exactly what I would expect. I, I think I would expect it to be a little higher. If we're using the Sly Flourish rule, yeah, it would be about 17 if we were using the Sly Flourish rule on that. But whatever. Plus 13, seven piercing, yay. Nine necrotic damage, eh, right? If the target is a creature is affected by entropic magic, taking nine necrotic damage at the start of each of its turns. Something about like damage at the start of the turn is that it's a hard thing to track. We did this in fourth edition. It was just hard to remember everybody to remember all the stuff they had tracked. Because trust me, players have a real tendency to forget about the fact when they're taking ongoing effects like that. I don't know why, but for some reason, they just have a hard time remembering that they're taking nine necrotic damage. They sure remember when someone else is. So ongoing damage is kind of a pain in the ass. However, immediately after taking the damage on the turn, target can make a DC 20 con save right after they take it, right? And ending the effect. Until it succeeds on its save, the target can't regain heal, can't regain hit points. This is really important. This is the only thing that makes Vecna lethal. And I think Vecna is really hard to run because you have to keep this in mind. You have to keep in mind, I got to be able to stay away from pain in the ass paladins who want to triple smite me for, 90, for 192 points of damage. I got to stay out of range of them. But I got to stay in range of other people to be able to teleport in and get my 80 hit points back. And I have to make sure to hit everybody with this dagger at least once so that when they're making these DC 20 con saves, they can't heal. I got to make sure they can't heal. Otherwise, they'll just heal all the time. All right, 20th level characters, trust me, they heal all the time. All right. So that stopping the heal is the only thing that makes him really lethal. Flight of the Damned, Flying Spectral Entities, 120-foot cone, pass through all creatures, blah, 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 blah. DC 22 con save. On a failed save, the creature takes 36 necrotic. 36 necrotic. 20th level characters, 36 might as well be zero, right? It's not, that's not a lot of damage, right? Not a lot of damage. 
Here's the Sly Flourish tweak, right? You ready? Instead of 36 damage, how about we make Vecna as hard as a challenge rating four monster, the Banshee? Let's look at the Banshee, right? Whale. The Banshee releases a morphal whale, provided she isn't in sunlight. The whale has no effect on constructs or undead. All creatures within 30 feet of her must make a DC 13. We'll make it DC 20. Con save. On a failure, you drop to zero. That's serious business. CR 4. Challenge rating 4. Right? Vecna. Challenge rating 26. Turn that one into that. Right? You make a DC 22 con save. On a fail, you drop to zero. That'll scare players. That's a lot of damage. That's not 36. That's like 192 points of damage. Serious business. Demi-Liches also have the same thing. Right? Demi... You might take the Demi-Lich one. Right? Demi-Lich has... Where is it? Howl, right? Just just take the Howl and make the DC 15, make a DC 22, right? Successful save, the creature is frightened until the end of next turn. I think it's cool. Take the Howl from the Demi-Lich, replace the one for Vecna, and you have a scary Vecna. And people are like, you know, I see uh, Galandrell says, yikes, we have it on challenge rating four, right? So, you know, yeah, yeah, Banshees are really scary because their damage scales. You know what's really scary? When you run a bunch of Banshees, <laughs> right? Think how much more dangerous. Take challenge rating 26, figure out how many Banshees you could run instead, right? And run those Banshees and you will TPK a party because they're going to have to make 30 saving throws and they're going to drop to zero otherwise. So why should Banshees be more dangerous than Vecna? Yeah, you shouldn't. Change change this to a drop to zero instead of 36 damage. 36 is a cone of cold. Mages at CR whatever, six do cone of cold, 36 damage. Rotten Fate. This is the only one that Vecna really does real damage, right? Uh, causes necrotic damage to engulf one creature, 120 feet, DC 22 con save, 96 necrotic on a failed save, half as much on success. Humanoid killed by this becomes as a zombie. But it takes a lot to kill somebody with this. I don't, like, if, they, if this was more finger of deathy, it would be better. It, it should say they die if it reaches zero. And then they could turn to a zombie. So you could add that too if you really wanted to be nasty, right? And Vecna could cast a bunch of spells. We already talked about how like, hey, we're not supposed to worry about the spells anymore. They're supposed to be sort of side things. But these spells matter because Dominate Monster, he can cast Dominate Monster and poke twice with Afterthought and do his legendary actions. And Dominate Monster on a Barbarian is about the only way you're going to take a Barbarian out, right? That can matter a lot. Globe of Vulnerability is not bad. You might let him have it already. Maybe he just casts it before the battle begins. Give him give him that. Come on. It's Vecna, right? I would probably let him have that automatically. I, I'd give him fly too, but maybe that maybe I'd be being a dick if I gave Vecna fly. But why wouldn't he fly? So we talked about the teleport, right? And the, the trick is you have to position him. There's all this weird positioning things. And it's one thing about Vecna that I don't, I don't feel like the mechanics fit the story. Because when I think about what it's like to fight Vecna, I think about like Stranger Things, right? I think about this creature floating in the middle of a room, eyes closed, smiling while everybody's dying around him, right? I don't figure he's like skirmishing around, right? And all of his ability, he has fly at will, does he? Oh, he does have fly at will. Look at that. Yeah. Is it concentration? Is fly a concentration spell? I can't remember. Oops, I'm looking at it. Fly is concentration. I'd, I'd let him have it. I'd let him have that permanently. But good point. So he'd almost certainly already be flying. Like, why wouldn't he be flying? Okay, good. Thank you. Thank you for that, Moljaw. See, once again, proving I don't know what I'm talking about. I don't know why you're even listening to me. But thank you. Thank you for listening to me, though. He's a skirmisher. He's moving around. He's zipping around. He's got to be careful. And the reason why he's got to be careful is like you want fell rebuke. Right. In response to being hit by an attack, Vecna utters a fell word, dealing 10 necrotic damage to the attacker, and Vecna teleports along with any equipment carrying to 30 feet to an unoccupied square. But you don't want him teleporting, tele, teleporting, teleporting so far 
that he can't teleport in with his bonus action to get those 80 hit points back. So he's got to stay relatively close to the characters to be able to use his vile teleport. And that's what I mean by like this weird skirmishing thing. He can't just like stay 60 feet away permanently. He's got to kind of come in, which I guess is kind of fun mechanically, but it's awfully skirmishery and not very controllery if we're going to use like 4E style monsters, right? Then we have Dread Counterspell, right? And and boy, like I'm all for dicking with players, but Dreadful, because so many of his abilities are not spells, you can't really counterspell him very much. You're not counterspelling Afterthought. You're not going to counterspell his other things, right? But he's also eating the spells of other people. And I just, I feel like that is a, and he can do it three times. You're just hosing spellcasters, right? You're just hosing them. Also, it's anyone he can see. You could be on a mountain, right? A thousand feet away. And he's like, yeah, you're not casting that spell. You're not, you're not doing that, right? So boy, boy, is, is that, is that a, a nasty counterspell? It's really nasty. And it completely invalidates casters. And I don't think they're going to enjoy it. I think players are not going to have a lot of fun fighting him. There's probably other ways you could do it. I don't know what. I was trying to think about this with some friends of mine. We were talking about like, what would be better? And something where he can still dick with you for casting a spell, but not take the spell away. Or not, or not stop it completely every time because he could do it three times, right? And then he can teleport when he takes damage. So these are good defensive traits, right? He can stop spells and he can stop it. I would probably only be using Dread Counterspell for people that that are casting spells like, casting spells like Force Cage or something that's really against Grim. Although he'd probably be fine in a Force Cage. He'd probably be happy to be in a Force Cage. He's like, oh, thank God I get a break. I get a, I get a little vacation. Sharpen my dagger. So... Yeah, so so I, I'll be honest. When I first saw it, I was like, "Ah, oh, right, what is this?" And then I started reading, and I'm like, "Ah, you know, it's building on me again." A small tweak. I think if you gave him the scream, he would be really scary, right? And I think that is worthy of a level 26 encounter. I think that, in my opinion, uh, a level 26 monster should be more dangerous than a. I'm sorry. In my opinion, a CR 26 monster should be more dangerous than a CR 4. I, maybe I'm just radical. Maybe it's just a radical thought of mine. Maybe we think, no, no, the CR4s should really be totally deadly. CR26s, we want to be, be nice to the players. They've worked, oh, they managed to get past the CR4 monsters. They should have an easy time. No, monsters of CR26 should be more dangerous to level 20, mon- to, to level 20 characters than CR4s should be to level three characters, right? Like if you're going to have a character, if you're going to have a group of characters facing off against Banshees, this guy should be as dangerous to that same level characters as the Banshees are. That's my feeling. And they are not, right? Most of them are not. So my idea of like Vecna just speaks and utter, like think about that. It's like power word kill, but for everybody, right? And I would do it where like, again, anybody who can hear him, <laughs> right? Is he speaks a vile word and you fall over dead. You fall over to zero. Not dead, zero. And zero is not to say, but if he's dead and he goes over and pokes you with a dagger, you're kind of out of luck. So I would be nice with that. I would only poke the people who have not dropped to zero because otherwise you're going to take people out. And I would probably use his dominate. I look at this stat. It's cool. I'm, I'm good. Right? It's fine, right? I, I, I put it in the same line that I look at the stat blocks for, for Fizzband's Treasury Dragons. A lot of high CR monsters in Fizzband's Treasury Dragons. And it's funny because the mid-level CR monsters are way stronger than they used to be. But high-level ones, they're still weak right? Monsters of the Multiverse, a lot of mid-level monsters, really strong, really strong. We're going to talk about a couple of them today. High level, eh. you know, and I think it's because they're overweighting these other abilities. They're lowering their damage because they're giving them these other abilities and they should not do that. That's my opinion. But 
again, we're not here to fix Watsy. We are here to fix our games. And in my game, I am, if I was going to run this guy, I would replace Flight of the Damned with Word of the Damned and have him drop people to zero. I would probably steal the, the howl from the Demi-Lich and throw it right on this guy. So that is my thoughts on Vecna. Monty Cook Games is preparing to release an open license for the Cypher system. They haven't done so yet. But this has come up enough. People are talking about it. I've been running a lot of Numenera. I love it. I love the Cypher system. I will be very interested to see what people do with this. I've been thinking about like, well, how do you use this to make like lightweight games or, you know, it's a, it's a really good system. I really dig it. So I'm glad that they're coming out with a open license so that other people can use it for it. There's a few other RPG, mini RPGs that people have written around around cypher that have been sort of licensed by them i think so they've already done some work with it we'll probably take another look at it when they uh, when they release the full thing i don't really know what i would do with it frankly i was thinking about it, i was like it's great i'm glad they're doing it what does it mean i don't know i don't know I, you know does it mean like write you more systems for it? it it could be it could be so we'll see what's in the license too it could be it could be pretty cool anyway exciting stuff so we'll, we'll take another look when they actually have the license out. We are going to take a look at my friend, Jeff Stevens, put out a new Potbellied Kobold book, to Potbellied Kobold's Guide to Villains and Lairs. As you may be aware, I, I wrote a book with James Hunter Castle and Scott Gray called Fantastic Lairs, where we focus on boss battle, lairs and boss battles for 5e games. Jeff Stevens has done a book similar to that. More, he's definitely reached out to a wider community of people to build those lairs, lots of lairs. And I think this is one of those areas where you could have as many books as you want, because every lair is going to be different and they're, they're definitely good kinds of things uh, to use like all of his books it's a beautiful book really well done i have a physical book to uh, other jeff stevens books and they are fantastic beautiful books they look really really good and they they're well put together well edited you know great design and look at all the different writers look at all the people who wrote stuff like this There's so many different very good solid diverse set of writers who have written many different things for it i was shocked to find that Josh Perry, JVC Perry, was not one of the writers because like he's writes in everything. Every time I pick up something, it's from, from, from Josh Perry. But he did not write for this. Adventures from the Potbelly Kobold was one of the other books that he put together. I loved it. Uh, I, I read it a lot. And in this one, so it's a bunch of different villains and sometimes the layers that they reside in. Beautiful artwork. He does a great job of finding artwork to put into the games. Really, 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 really good stuff. Again, nice. This, this kind of product really lends itself to having a lot of different authors because you can sort of have different authors working on different things. But I know uh, that it is a hard, I know that it is a hard book to put together. That editing and bringing together and making a single voice for a lot of different authors is really, really hard work. The link I have is to the PDF that is on DriveThruRPG. Really cool artwork, lots of descriptions about the information about a particular NPC, what are their motives and flaws, what personalities do they have, stat blocks, of course, so you could drop them into your game. I think it covers a wide level range, really, again, really fun art. The art is really useful because you can drop the art in and show it to your players, which is always which is always really, really handy. And little layers, right? Little spots that you have. Full color maps. The maps are available when you get the PDF, so you can drop them right into your VTT of choice. And let's see, do they go, let's, let's look at some of the later ones and see if he's got some real high level guys here i see some cr9s here's one by ed greenwood got ed greenwood to write one of his monsters for him right it's challenge rating nine all right oh, here's a guy fighting a giant with a wand ashborn colvard the death cloud cool stuff cr16 devil sight very cool legendary monsters so covers everything from low level to high level monsters uh, really cool looking, you know, cool layer maps. I love the maps in this. Just an excellent design. Excellent design, really good product. Uh, again, the kind of stuff that Jeff that Jeff Stevens is putting out is really, really excellent. They have many colors. A huge dragon with multiple breath weapons. Interesting. 
I wonder if that's, is that another, what's CR? CR 17. So not quite TMAT level, but, but getting there. So if you are looking for small villains and layers to grab and drop into your game, I think you could do far worse than picking up the Potbelly Kobold's Guide to Villains and Layers available on DriveThruRPG. Links to the product are in the show notes below. Check it out. Buy it. If you like it, leave a review on the site. Help other people find it. It looks really good. So Jeff, thank you for, thank you for putting that. So this week I had the opera. I've been talking a lot about Monster of the Multiverse. And this week, I had the opportunity to run two of the new stat blocks uh, in an actual game. I ran the War Priest, and I ran the, the new Enchanter. I'm talking a lot about stat blocks, right? Talking a lot about monsters, talking a lot about stat blocks. I love them. I really love them. These, th this is where I think Wizards really hit the mark with the new design. Th th when they talked about what they were intending to do when they were doing the new version of the monsters. They talked about making sure that a monster was easy to run and still held its own at its challenge rating, even if you pick different options for it. And to me, these monsters definitely pull that weight. The War Priest at CR 9, 117 hit points. Multi-attack makes two maul attacks and uses Holy Fire. The maul attack is 10 bludgeoning plus 10 radiant. That's 40 points of damage just from those two attacks. And Holy Fire does an additional 12 and blinds. Really, really good. And Healing Light, War Priest, one creature of his choice can regain 12 hit points. I forgot to do that. So even with these simpler stat blocks, I still forget to do stuff, right? But very reskinnable. So I had this as a villain. I had a, a villain that was a War Priest of Falkovnia that I ran in my Wild Beyond the Witchlight game as a incursion from the world of Falkovnia. He was a Blood Raven War Priest, Blood Raven War Priest. And he held his own at Challenge Rating 9. The, ca the characters are level 6. There were five level 6 characters, and he was a good threat for them. I had three veterans, the Enchanter, and him. So it was a pretty big fight with a lot of stuff going on. And he would whirl this hammer around, and he missed a lot, right? A lot. Their armor cost is pretty high, so he missed a lot, but plus 7 still pretty. But he critically hit my wife's character and hit her for 36 damage in one shot, and it knocked her right out right and she's like oh my god and i described how like friends of the characters from valleys away saw a flash of light on a mountain and went wow the, the lightning is really strong and it was not the lightning it was because she got hit with this radiant warhammer really cool one of the things he can do a little fun tactic for him is he can do the holy fire first he doesn't have to use the you know you can do these in any order so he can do holy fire on someone blind them walk over and then get two hits with advantage against them that's pretty brutal, right? Pretty brutal. So these guys definitely hit. Now he's got spell casting. He still has other things he can do if you want. If it, if it fits that instead of doing all that stuff, that's a lot of stuff to miss though, right? Two mall attacks and holy fire. Are you going to give that up for a banish? Probably not, right? Not for hold person, certainly. But if you needed it, if you needed banish for some reason, if you needed, you know, dispel magic or flame strike, he's got it right he's got it on hand but we don't have to use it we don't have to worry that his challenge rating is not their challenge rating is not buried under spell casting this the challenge rating works if you did not use spell casting which i think is the real the real key to that the enchanter i also used uh, i had one problem with the enchanter which is i forgot I, I didn't do three arcane blasts i did two but one of the things about the arcane blast of this guy is the enchanter is challenge rating five which is not super high right i mean it's high it's not super high but it does 19 times 3. It does 57 points of damage at challenge rating 5, right? Which is what? That's like almost 11 points. Yeah, it's, a, it's 11 points of damage per challenge rating. To me, the benchmark is 7, right? 7 per challenge rating is about right. 11 is high. This guy does a lot of damage. So when I ran him, I said, I'm going to have him only make extra attacks if he misses, 
right? This is my trick. He fires off an arcane burst. He misses. He fires another one. He misses. He fires another one, right? I forgot to do three, though. I had a miss, and he never actually landed a hit because it's only plus six to hit, and he fired, a, he fired a couple. I might... You could also split them. So the idea that he fires his arcane burst, but he targets three different creatures, that's pretty effective. That's more like he's casting a fireball or a lightning bolt or something like that, only he doesn't... You don't have to worry about lining things up, which is really great. But boy, if you land all three of these on one target, that is really, really brutal for CR5. Now, maybe you reskin this guy and you have a few of these in a battle against high-level characters. Now, you're talking serious businesses, three different attacks. So that really works well. The instinctive charm, again, I forget this stuff. When a visible creature within 30 feet makes an attack roll against the channel, forces the attacker make DC 14 on a, on a failed to the attacker. That would have been really fun, and I forgot to do it. I'm the terrible DM. This is why I like Fire Giant stat blocks, because I don't forget things. I don't forget the reactions. Read those stat blocks. But when you got three different stat blocks, you got a bunch of players, you're standing, you're firing out stuff, it's easy to forget this stuff. Read those parts, because that would have been really fun. So uh, my, my point is that, like, I think this is really the sweet spot for where the new monsters of the multiverse monsters are really holding their own, is that mid-CR, that sort of five to, you know, five to 11, maybe, Right? The monsters are hitting hard. They're doing a lot of stuff. They're as effective as low CR monsters are to low level characters, which is really what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a general consistency across challenge rating that, a th that the threats are roughly equal, right? And I don't get that at high CR. And I still don't think I'm getting it at high CR. But I really like these. So I wanted to share that experience with it, share my faults. Two abilities, like that Warpriest could have been healing people and he wasn't, and the Enchanter could have been charming people and making them redirect their attacks. That would have been really cool. I wish I had done it. I didn't. I suck. But the Enchanter got away. So he escaped. He used, he used invisibility because he's got it on his list. I threw invisibility and he ran. So he could come back, right? He can come back with more Falconian soldiers. And now he's going to remember to use that thing. So very cool. Yeah, so I, I really, I, I do dig him. I'm, I'm happy with these new these new stat blocks. I like the new NPC stat blocks. And the key of the NPC stat blocks is you can reskin the hell out of them. You can use the NPC stat block on like any kind of NPC, right? You can really almost use them as a template. You in the third edition, you could add class levels to monsters. You could say like, I'm going to take my hill giant, but I'm going to give them five class levels of enchanter. What I suggest is take your hill giant stat block and give them these abilities or just drop, you know, you can ignore the base stat, stat stuff and give them these abilities and have them do it. And it's a way of creating that third edition style class level monsters with class levels by sort of reskinning the abilities of these NPCs, right? Do you want a frost giant war priest, right? Take a frost giant, right? So he's plus nine with 25 damage to hit. So you could take his attack and just take the abilities of this, you know, the, the 10 extra radiant damage, the holy fire, right? The spell casting and the heal and just drop that right on your frost giant. And now you have a frost giant war priest and you don't even have to write anything down. You can just keep the two blocks in front of you, right? You know, keep, keep the two blocks handy and have him do that thing. I think that would work really well. That frost giant, that frost giant priest would be really brutal doing 25 slashing plus 10 radiant twice very cool very good question galendril says how do you adjust the cr you don't because at that point the cr is no longer useful to you right you're not taking that monster and turning it into something you're going to publish and give out to other people you are using that for your table cr falls apart the minute you understand the capabilities of your players and your characters and the environment and the situation all of those other things matter more than the challenge rating of a monster so you should, should hopefully be able to gauge your situation and say, if I make this frost giant 
if I add this other stuff, is it going to make it more deadly? Well, then you can ask yourself, well, is, do I have a barbarian who's taking half damage on this stuff anyway? You know, what's the situation? Who are the other monsters? The minute, the minute you actually start building an encounter for your group, you don't have to worry so much about CR anymore. The minute you tailor it, because all the other factors are going to have a bigger factor in there. They're going to have a bigger effect than challenge rating anyway. So don't worry about recalculating. I think it's a waste of time to recalculate challenge rating. You know he will be harder than the CR8. You don't have to worry if it's CR10, right? You don't have to go back to the DMG and, and, and figure out the math. I, I, I do not worry about it. Back in the day, there was no balance. You, you kind of looked at hit dice, right? Hit dice was sort of the way to gauge whether a monster, how a monster related, but there wasn't anything like challenge rating. You didn't worry about it. You just pick the monster that fit the situation. And that's kind of what I recommend, right? Yeah, so my, the main thing is like, I think CR is a rough gauge. It's a very, very rough gauge at best. And when you modify, go ahead and modify it. Don't worry about recalculating the CR because you, what you know about the capabilities of the players, the capabilities of the characters, the environment they're in, the situation that they're in, things like winning initiative. If the players win initiative, what's the CR then? <laughs> right? I'll tell you, it's a lot easier when they win initiative than if they lose initiative. So yeah, so, so, so check, check that out. And, you know, try that out. Try and, and think about those NPC stat blocks as ways to add class levels. Sometimes you could just call the stat block something else. So any humanoid can be a war priest. You could have war priest goblin, right? You could have war priest minotaur. You could have, you know, war, any, any creature that's roughly the existing challenge rating. You don't have to even use the other stat block. Just call it something and say it's a war priest. You could also have, ready? Undead war priest, skeletal war priest, war priest white right and all it is is an undead version of the same thing does the same stuff but it's a war it's a white instead of a instead of a like thing and just call it that you don't even have to change any stats just call it that say it's undead and then things that affect undead and affect that cool stuff let's do some patreon questions so every month i put up a post on the slide patreon for q a i answer all the questions there some of those questions i take and i i put together into a list that we talk about here on the show other ones i will take and I will do a separate video or a separate uh, article about them. But let's talk about, let's look at the ones we've got today. Dylan B, I've also edited the text slightly. So some people you might be like, I wrote three sentences and you only took one. I try to focus on what the question is. Dylan B says, do you have any advice for encouraging overly cautious parties to play a little bit more adventurously? Yeah, this is tough. And definitely when you have a whole group where everybody in it are generally cautious players, they're testing for traps, they're looking at doors, they're testing everything out. That can be really hard. And the, the, the thing to, I think a way to handle this is to try to reward people for bravery, right? Reward them for taking that risk, reward them for opening the door. I will often reward inspiration for people who are willing to open the door right? Now, it doesn't mean being stupid, right? They still want to be careful and cautious. And again, the other way you can reward them is remembering that the players don't know what the characters know, that the characters are there. It's life and death. They're in the situation. They're smelling the air. They're feeling the moisture. They're looking at the tiles. You're just describing things to the players. The players aren't adventurers. They're just players. They don't know the kind of stuff their characters would know. So sometimes, A, I presume that the characters are smart, right? That the characters are seasoned adventurers and they're smart, which means I will warn if the player is doing something dumb, I will warn them that the character would might not know that that's a good idea within reason. The player might know all the information and still do something dumb. And then they go with the gods, right? But sometimes it's like, oh, I didn't know that that was the case, right? Like assume that they're smart adventures and they're not doing dumb things, right? And and, and let them know. So you can say things like, 
you have thoroughly checked this room for traps and you're confident there aren't any. You don't get to screw them then and say, ah, except you forgot about the one on the door and it shoots a dart in your eye, poison dart in the eye. So you don't, you don't punish them. You, you can't jump cut and say your characters do a thorough investigation of this hallway and are confident that you've, you've thoroughly looked for traps. You don't then get to spring a trap on in that hallway. Right now, the hard part is like, well, when do you switch over to like them actually doing the checks and stuff like that versus you just saying that and pacing is one question. You don't do it all the time. You definitely want to sometimes have them thoroughly test a hallway, even though there isn't a trap. Right. So you don't want to have it where, oh, Mike only ever asks for dice rolls when there is a trap. Right. There is a joke about Schrodinger's trap where the trap only exists if the characters look for it. Right. Otherwise, they just move on. Intelligence Dice says rug pulling is bad. Right. Don't surprise them. I mean, there's surprise and there's surprise. Don't adversely say, oh, you said you opened the door, but you didn't say you searched for traps. And you're like, I've said it on every other door. And you're like, I know, but you didn't say it this time. Like, that's just a dick move. The other one is like, you know, I want to go charge the wizard. Can I charge the wizard? Sure you can. I charge the wizard. The ogre gets an opportunity attack against you. Oh, I wouldn't have done it if I'd known I was. Well, you didn't ask. That's a bad one, right? I Like, always let the characters know. I mean, again, this is grid versus theater of the mind, right? But certainly in theater of the mind, if the character is going to take an opportunity attack, let them know they're going to take it before they make the decision, right? Work with the players to try to help them understand the situation the characters are in and let them have meaningful options that they can take. So... If you do all of these things, if you're on the player's side, if you're on the character's side, if you're showing them this stuff, if you are being truthful with with jump cuts of like you've thoroughly checked the room, they will probably be a little less worried about not about gotchas that you're trying to hit them with a gotcha right and then if you can find ways to reward them for bravery if there are characters who are a little like from a role price perspective are, are a little more adventurous or a little more reckless don't punish them for it right they're moving the story forward so i use inspiration a lot of times there's probably other rewards tangible and intangible rewards you can give players who are willing to make that you know, make that jump. I think that can work. The other one is like time. Timing can be a factor. So Dylan, I hope that answers your question. Kyle says, uh, I'm struggling with published adventures, specifically with read aloud text descriptions, be they grand sweeping vistas, individual room descriptions in towns and dungeons, important NPCs. I've been watching the creators of my current campaign run their game, naturally describing the above mentioned scenarios with effortless ease. Rarely referencing their notes, likely because it's all in their head or they're just making up the rest on the spot. Meanwhile, I feel like I need to stick to the script and God forbid the players ask a question whose answer may be not buried in three or maybe buried in three paragraphs of text underneath the read aloud. I find myself staring uh, more at the campaign book than I do at the players. Even if I'm role playing an NPC, looking for or hoping for the answer to come out in two pages, lest I make up the answer in the spot. Is this the nature of published adventures and why DMs find the freedom of homebrewing so rewarding? <laughs> Somebody says bullet point lists. Yeah, so bullet point lists can help. I think that so so there's a this covers a big a big topic right and the big topic is what do published adventures actually give you? Published adventures don't make your life easier. Shocker, right? You think like, oh, my game should be easier because I have published adventure. They don't. They don't make your life easier. They do offer you a lot of material you don't have to make yourself, right? So you're not going to hire artists to do artwork for you. Probably you're not going to have beautiful maps done by Will Doyle, right? That you're not going to have storylines that have been carefully developed by a team of developers and play tested. There's a lot of things that a published adventure gives you. What they generally don't give you is time savings, right? They give you material beyond what you could create. I think, I mean, you know, different people get different things and sometimes they save time. Generally not. 
the kind of work that you have to do to prepare for a published adventure is different than the kind of work you have to do for a homebrew adventure, but you still have to do work both ways. I don't know if it's equal, but it's not so unequal that one clearly is easier than the other, I don't think. And, and to me, the, the, the right way, an effective way to read a published adventure is to give it a good read when you get it, right? When you're running it, get, try to give it a good read about what's going on, what are the major beats, what's the major plot line. And then when you're getting ready to run a section, pretty close to when you're going to run it, try to read that section again. Give it a good look, especially like a dungeon or something like that where they're in a place with a bunch of rooms. Try to really understand what's in the rooms. One trick I have is I tend to, sp I tend to skip the read aloud text when I'm reading it to myself. And then I read the read aloud text when I'm reading it to players. And that's because usually this, the text underneath the read aloud text also gives you an idea of what's going on. And it's a way to kind of, you, you know, you're going to read the other part already, but you're not going to necessarily read the other part out loud. So it helps you understand what's there that's not in the read aloud text. So I tend to, the read aloud, I tend to skip the read aloud text. It's a weird way that I do it. I don't know if that's good or bad. It's just something that I do. Don't worry about comparing yourself to others is another piece of this that's that's in your in your in your description here that you you said that you've seen other creators i don't know who you're talking about or or what venue you're reading but certainly if you're reading streaming games and stuff like that you know it's different it's a different field it's different people different stuff I, you know i don't get into like the whole question of the mercer effect and stuff like that is the mercer effect creating this unrealistic expectation the reality is that like players are going to have fun it'll be okay but they do a lot of times you do just make stuff up, up on the spot if you can't find it, you can't find it but if you can just say give me a second right and read it it's okay everybody will be okay as long as the game is not so boring that you're doing that the whole time people give you i do it all the time like i eladin like i keep forgetting the name of one of my npcs i'm like damn i keep forgetting the name of the npc and one of the players go, oh it's eladin like, oh yeah that's eladin right or i'll go okay let's go back sometimes i just have to read the book it's okay right it's all right we're there with our friends our friends love us we're all there to have a good time don't don't fret about it too much. But yeah, when you're getting ready to run, you write, writing, I, I'm a big believer in taking a pen and writing notes in your book. Go ahead and do it. Think about, you know, the 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 the, the potion book of the Half-Blood Prince, right? The one that was all beat up and had all the notes was the really good one. And like make your book fun and unique for you by writing in little notes. I like to make little modifications to stat blocks right in my notebook. Go ahead. You're not you're not the one that has to archive a perfect copy right? You get to have your copy that's yours that you get to write in. So I know people that like flip out when I talk about writing in your book, but go ahead and write in your book and take a little notes, highlight, take a little highlighter and highlight the things that you think are really important. Go ahead, make it yours. It'll be cool. How much cooler will it be when like your grand nephew picks out your copy of Wild Beyond the Witchlight and sees all the highlights that you had in there from the time you ran it way back in 2022 during that crazy pandemic we had, right? That's history. Kyle, I hope that answers your question. Andrea M says, what do you think about narrative breaks? Uh, I mean, usually I, I usually set the scene describing something that happens meanwhile somewhere else just to give the players a glimpse of a living world. Have you ever used something like this? Do you think it can contribute to give consistency to the stories? Yes, I love doing this. I don't do it that often. But uh, there are occasions where I like to break away from the point of view of the characters and jump to a whole different situation and show them stuff. One part where I like to do this a lot is flash fiction. I like to write like really short, like less than, a, you know, 150 words, really short flash fiction that I'll send as an email to the groups. Uh, I've done this for villains. When villains are moving things along, I want the players to know that the villains are moving things along, even if the characters don't know. I like doing that. And I've had players where they lose their, they're like, wait a minute, my player, my character doesn't know that. And you're like, that's right. And, you know, it's giving the idea that like the player and the character are not synonymous, right? That the character, the players can know things the characters don't. And when you break that connection by doing stuff like this, they, the players are more kind of invested in the game themselves because they have that little piece of the world 
that other little piece that the, that the characters don't have. So it, I think it's great. I, I recommend them. I probably wouldn't do it all the time, but I think it's really good for things like showing villainous quests that are going on to show the impacts of things that they had done. If you say like, hey, they made this thing. What's the butterfly effect? Can they see that? Absolutely. I love it. I think a one great way to do it is to uh, is to do it as a small piece of written flash fiction short because nobody nobody reads anymore. Nobody has time. R- a short like 100 word email that just talks about like what a villain is doing, right? I love doing that. It's actually a good prep too because it helps you think about what the villains are doing. So your prep is something you can directly use that is enriching the player's view of the world but is also helping you understand what's happening in the world as well. So yeah, it's a very powerful trick. I really I really like it. I really recommend it. It's a, it's a good thing. Lawrence A says, how do you make the story centered around the players if you haven't given much backstory or goals? I've asked some of them. We, I think we have a couple questions on this. I've asked some of them for more stuff that they would like to do in the world or backstory to work in, but they seem happy just interacting with what I'm giving them in the world. I have started to just incorporate storylines related to the races that they have to choose to help this. So some players just aren't into it. They don't, they're not into their background. And that's okay because you think about it, especially like level one, they shouldn't have a lot of background yet. They shouldn't have a lot of stuff yet. So I think it's perfectly fine uh, for players to just not have deep backstories. You can still incorporate stuff. You can still say like, hey, you're at the bar, you look over and there's this guy from your past. Uh, he's a veteran that fought with you back in the war. His name is Rex. What do you... What do you remember about them? What do you, why don't you describe one of the situations where you and Rex were? And you can sort of draw them in by sort of seeding them. I have an article called Campfire Stories where you have these like t- questions that you can ask people that are, that are kind of leading, they're leading questions. They're questions that are leading them down a path. There are certain things you can ask them. There's certain things you can't. Don't ask them to come up with a name on the spot. Asking for somebody to come up with a proper name is hard. It's hard as a DM. It's certainly hard as a player and you're going to get something goofy. So you might generate the name for them, but you could ask them about the relationship. You know, what family member did you used to be with that now works at the academy, right? What, what, you know, what cousin went missing that, that, you know, you found in the abyss, right? So you can, you can draw on these, you can, you can draw on these by asking these little loaded questions, right? that draw them into that. But but also don't worry about them not having a big backstory. It's cool. Like they, if they're having fun, enjoying the story that's going on, all the better, right? But if you can find these opportunities to, to kind of draw a little bit, you know, there's there's little things you can do there. So that 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 is that is what I would recommend. Steve L says, what currently influences your resources and material? L- you know, less useful is what influences me and what influences all of us, right? And I think the answer, like, where do we get our ideas, right? Stephen King talks about this. Like, where do you get your ideas? And he's like, a little guy, I think Neil Gaiman has a thing like, oh, there's a little shop in, in you know, little shop in Lost London where I go to and I, I buy ideas there. You guys always got new ideas and I just go and pick them up, right? And Stephen King is like everywhere. And the answer is everywhere, right? Where do you get your ideas? It really comes from everywhere. Books and movies and TV shows and games and other people and people you meet in life, right? All of these can kind of become influenced. And I think kind of opening our eyes and opening our lives to all of these experiences, I think is really good. Find good fiction, right? Find fiction you really, you really love and enjoy that really grabs you and influences you. Find TV shows that you love, find movies that you love, and, and you get to love them, right? You don't have to love what other people love. You don't have to you know, you don't have to, they don't have to love the things that you love, right? So you get to pick what you're going to have as be your, your inspiration. And one thing is like the, the, the genre doesn't need to work. 
you know, I always talk about how Deadwood influences NPCs, right? Deadwood is not the same as a D&D game, but oh boy, does that, does that little town and its in crazy inhabitants fit well into RPGs? I think so. So keeping your mind open to all of these different things, thinking about them, writing them down, taking, I really, and I talk about taking walks, right? I, I did it the other day. I'm working on a big project and I was like, I need to think of more stuff on my project. I took an hour long walk and I came back and I had like 12 new major ideas for the project. Really, really good. Take a walk. Don't listen to anything. Don't don't be on your phone. Take a walk. Look at the trees. Ask yourself a question. Think about the thoughts. I, that works really well for me. I, I hope it works for other people. It's not for everybody, obviously. Some people taking an hour long walk is either hard or impossible. So I, I get it. But you know, find find time to just be yourself. Be be your be your own and 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 think of those ideas and then absorb lots of fiction. So okay. But what about me? What fiction have I been enjoying? Boy, Elden Ring. I am a huge Dark Souls fan. I have I've been a Dark Souls fan for, I don't know, seven, eight years. I've played them all. I've beaten them all, all of the From Software games. And I am on my third playthrough of Elden Ring at this point because I just can't stop playing. And wow, that, a lot of influences from there. A lot of City of Arches, a lot of the, the world that I have from the City of Arches comes from from software games, particularly Dark Souls 1, because the, the world in Dark Souls 1, the way that that world is put together is amazing. And certainly Elden Ring is really, really well put together too. But the idea of having an entire game that's like a vertical tower is really, really cool. And that was where like City of Arches, that idea that it's like limitless up and limitless down, that really came from that. So I find... I mean, actually, the From Software games influence a lot of what I do. Secrets and Clues. I think I've mentioned this before. The idea of Secrets and Clues comes from the way that From Software, which is the company that makes the Dark Souls games, the way a lot of the storytelling for their games happens by having descriptions on items, one line or two line descriptions on items. And you, it, a lot of the lore that goes behind them are put together by piecing together the pieces of this lore that's tied to one or two sentences on on various items. If you look at like Elden Ring lore blogs or Elden Ring videos, they build these stories and you're like, where did they ever get this stuff? And it's because they, they read the descriptions of items. And I love that idea so much. I was like, I want to do the same thing. If I have my big story, instead of shelling out this huge story, I will tie those elements of fiction to items in the game or to things in the game or to people in the game. And so that idea of one or two sentences that are tied to it, that idea of secrets and clues directly came from me playing... Uh, I think it was Bloodborne. I, w I got it from playing Bloodborne and Bloodborne did the same thing. And I thought that was a brilliant way to tell stories. And I ended up writing Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master and here we all are. So yeah, so big influence from From Software Games. I love those games. Other things, I read a, a pair of books, Gideon the Ninth and Harrow the Ninth. Uh, and there's a new one coming out as well. I loved Gideon the Ninth. I love that book to death. It was really, it's a great, great hyper fantasy science fiction game yeah it's probably called the locked tomb series really really gideon the ninth is a really really good book harrow the ninth has amazing ideas in it really like you know galaxy sized magic kind of ideas in it really fantastic however the way it's written is almost impenetrable it was it took me like a year i read i read gideon the ninth really fast and Harrow the Ninth took me forever to finish because I just couldn't get my head around the writing. It was like second, weird second person writing and weird time jumps. And yeah, it was not nearly as easy to read as Gideon was. And Gideon was fantastic. And 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 I, I recommend Gideon. And you can try Harrow. If you really love Gideon, you can try Harrow. But the ideas in Harrow are really good and mind mind blowing, like, you know, big head explosion gif sort of idea. So I loved I love that. Any other major influences? Any other things that I've been really enjoying? 
I love the movie The Green Knight, and I'm going to watch that again. I watched it once, and I, I want to watch it again, and I've been listening to the soundtrack for The Green Knight over and over again because I love it. So the reality is we get inspiration from, from all over the place. And, and you know, again, your source of inspiration is not the same as anybody else's, and that's totally cool. Uh, so, Steve, thank you for the question. With that, I think we have come to the end of the Lazy Indie Talk Show. I want to thank everybody for hanging out with me this morning to uh, chat about D&D. I want to thank all of you who are watching on YouTube. If you've enjoyed this show and you want to help me out, you can subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter, support me directly on Patreon, pick up any of my books on the Sly Flourish bookstore, or subscribe to my videos right here on YouTube. Thank you all very much. Have a great day and get out there and play some D&D.